tell you, I love Sundays. I love being together with you. I love that we get to uh, share life together and open the word together. But there are some Sundays I will admit that I love even more than just your regular Sunday. And that is baptism Sunday. The month of March, we get to have two of them, which I am super excited about. We have a total of nine people getting baptized over two different Sundays. And it is gonna be a fantastic time of celebration. Absolutely. And uh, so I want to just give you a little cue. Next Sunday is our first one. March 5th, we're having five people up here on the stage getting baptized. You get to hear their stories through video. You get to be a part of the celebration and the wet hugs and high fives. And so as a reminder, the way we do it is in between first and second service. So if you're normally a first service person, which I'm guessing you are, just plan to stay a little bit longer and and you won't regret it. Just the, the wonderful time it's going to be. And if you tend to come to second service, maybe come a little earlier uh, to be a part of the special time next Sunday. We're so excited and looking forward to that. All right, if you would please grab your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 12, it was where we're going to be this morning, and uh, we, are, we are in the series called The Sacrifice. The Sacrifice is looking at Mark chapters 9 through 16, and, and uh, last Sunday was really an important one because we pivoted in Mark chapter 11 is where we were, we pivoted to this, this transition in the gospel of Mark to the final week of Jesus' life. We're spending a total of seven Sundays covering seven days, the final seven days of Jesus' life. And as Gabe talked about and prayed about, we are preparing our hearts really for Easter and the culmination that we get to to have of the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so that's where we find ourselves today. Our passage today in Mark chapter 12 pivots to Tuesday of the final week of Jesus' life. We've already covered Sunday and Monday events from Mark. Today we're on Tuesday. And I do want to remind you that this series comes with and partners with a devotional guide. And so I think we've gotten about 450 of those out or so. So I know many of you have them, but if by chance you don't have one yet, I would encourage you to pick one up in the lobby. If you're watching online, you can download it from the church website and uh, and follow along because this really does partner with the series and encourages your own personal quiet time during the week as you also enjoy uh, Mark on your own in learning uh, together in that way. Now with Tuesday's events, what we're going to see is that Jesus has a series of confrontive conversations. Tuesday is a day of teaching for Jesus. He's, he's in the Temple Mount. He's in a very public setting and he's interacting with crowds and he's, he's spending the bulk of the day teaching uh, disciples and the crowd. And we're also going to see though this group of religious leaders that are going to come and confront Jesus. They are looking to humiliate him. They're looking to trap him. They're looking to discredit and destroy him. This is what they're coming to do. And in fact, we see this really pick up in Mark chapter 11, verse 27. You can just look on the screen behind. This was a passage from your devotional guide that you would have covered. But it says this, that they, this is speaking of Jesus and his disciples, arrived again in Jerusalem. And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. So this sets up these, these conversations that we're going to look at today. Now, I put them in red, these different sectors or types of people that came to Jesus. Who are these guys? Well, these guys are a representative group of leaders from a group called the Sanhedrin. Uh, the Sanhedrin of this time is the highest authority in Israel. They are, think of, think of the executive branch, the judicial branch, and the legislative branch of our government all pushed together into one group of 70 men who hold all the cards and all the power. 
This is them. They are the high court. They are the rule makers. They are the ones that set the tone for everything. And this group that's come to him is representative of this, of this Sanhedrin uh, community. And so we see here that, that they're sending the big dogs. This is not just a group of your local, or your local priest or something like that coming and asking some questions to do an interview. This is the Sanhedrin that's headed up by the high priest Caiaphas sending those people to Jesus to go after him. And again, they're looking to take Jesus down. But what we're gonna see is that Jesus is gracious, but truthful. And he is bold in his response. In fact, you'd almost say he's provoking these religious leaders. He doesn't back down at all. He takes his stand, he interacts with them, and he's gonna take them to task. And again, almost as if he's, he's, he's provoking them as he's condemning this group of people. And so what we're gonna do today is we're gonna observe two conversations, two conversations. And out of these conversations, we're gonna learn something about Jesus. And we're also gonna learn some things about ourselves. And so hopefully you have your Bibles. You're ready to go. Mark chapter 12, verse one. This is where we'll pick up. It starts off this way. It says that Jesus then began to speak to them. Now the them is this group of what we just read in verse, chapter 11, verse 27, this group of leaders, but they're in a public setting. So I want you to imagine lots of people packed around. There's crowds, there's people that are checking this out. It says Jesus began to speak to them in, in parables. Now a parable, just so you know, is a story, but it has a lesson or a point. He's not just, it's not just story time. He's, he's making a point here in his, in his story. He says, a man planted a vineyard. He put up a wall around it. He dug a pit for the wine press and he built a watchtower. And then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and he moved to another place. In other words, he's entrusting this vineyard to, to others. And at harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit or, or the profit of the vineyard. But they seized him beat him and send him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them and they struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another and that one they killed. He sent many others, some of them they beat, others they killed. I wanna pause here real quick. It is not hard to begin to piece together and it wouldn't have been for this original audience what Jesus is doing here and what he's saying. These, these characters in the parable represent real life characters. You have the owner of the vineyard, this, this is God. You have the, 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 the religious leaders, they're the ones who are the renters. They're the ones that were put in charge to take care of the vineyard. And the vineyard represents the people of Israel. And so the renters are to take care of those people and to shepherd them well. And of course, they weren't doing that. And then you have these, the owner sending these different people to collect the fruit of the prophet, uh, of the fruit of the vineyard, excuse me. And these represent the Old Testament prophets. And as you read the Old Testament, you're very familiar and you would see over and over again, these, these men and, and women that would come as prophets and how they were beat and abused and ultimately killed. This wouldn't have been hard to see exactly what was going on. Let's keep going in verse six. It says he, now this is the owner, had one left to send, which was a son whom he loved. And he sent him last of all saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him. And the inheritance or the vineyard will be ours. And so they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now here's the big question. 
It was for Jesus to the crowd. He says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? And the answer, he will come and he will kill these, those tenants and give the vineyard to others. These religious leaders would have been infuriated because they knew that the parable was against them and it was told in a public setting. And so there's whispering, you can almost imagine there's this idea, this murmuring in the crowd of what's going on as he's sharing the story, but they are frustrated because this parable was a judgment. They were the ones in charge and Jesus is condemning them as you have been unfaithful. You have been unfaithful. Now, there's a few things we can learn from this. We're not done with the account here, but a few things I want to highlight. And here's your, if you have a bulletin on the backside, your first fill in the blank, because it's a good reminder to all of us. And it's this idea that those who lead are accountable for how they lead. And when I say this, yes, of course, I'm talking to, to uh, here for New Hope, the pastors and staff and leaders and elders and small group leaders and ministry leaders and, and all, the, uh, all of you that are in these positions of influence as you work with kids, for example, and students. But this is also for anyone and everyone who's in a position of influence in the lives of other people. This is for all of us. We're, we're accountable for how we interact with people, for how we treat people, for how we lead. This is for anyone who, who is a parent, who has been entrusted with children into your care to love and to nurture and to raise and to point them to Jesus. This is for, for any and all of us here as we think about this, this idea. It reminds me of Luke chapter 12, verse 48. Don't turn there, but look at this verse here because Jesus calls out this principle in this passage. He says this, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. This sort of reminds me of, of Spider-Man. Spider-Man, by the way, paraphrased Jesus. I mean, he, he took it from Jesus here, but when he says, with great power comes great responsibility, right? We, we know that, that saying there. This is what Jesus is saying. We're stewards for that with all the people in your life, all the opportunities in your life, the talents, the gifts, the resources, all of that. We are to steward it and to use it well. And it's a good reminder here, and please hear this, that there is nothing that is more valuable to the heart of God that he has entrusted you with, nothing more valuable than the people he's put around you. The people sometimes we get frustrated with. The people sometimes we are like, I wish they weren't around or, or I want to get away from. The people that we get annoyed. I mean, all of that, it's life. But, but those people are there and the opportunities are there to love them and to, and to invest into them. There is, there is nothing more valuable that Jesus can do than to place these people in and around your life. The encouragement is to love them and lead them well, just like Jesus did. This is a good reminder for us. You know what else it's a reminder of? This passage is a reminder of what is going on in the hearts of people. Because you have this account here with these religious leaders, of course, but it, it, the story reveals their heart. But the story also reveals our heart. Because I don't want any of us to sit here and we read this text and it'd be like, Jesus, yeah, get them. Like, you know, tell them what for and to, to put them in their place and to realize like they're the bad ones, but we're the good ones. That we're not like them. We're, we're different from them. And the truth is, we're not. We're not that way. And I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to think about this. 
is if Jesus were alive today, the incarnation was now and he was alive today, would we kill him? Would we kill him today? It can be a sobering question to consider. What, what would we do? How would we as not just individuals, but culturally respond to him? Because we live in a time, and you know this as well as I do, that, that preaches tolerance. Well, tolerance to anyone and everyone except those who are deemed intolerant. And there is none more intolerant than God and those who decide to follow his commands. Those are the most intolerant of all of them. And so we, we, we know that we see in culture that there are some people that will never stop until they rid their lives and rid this culture of God and his authority. Because remember, if you kill and get rid of, if you get rid of the owner and you kill the heir, you get the vineyard. And that becomes in the hearts of people that, that we have t- today. In fact, I want you to think about this. When Jesus came in his life, there was not a moment between his birth and his execution that Jesus was safe among people. There was never a moment. The Lord kept him safe and directed his life until he chose to lay it down. But there was never a moment among man and woman that he was safe and it would likely be the same today. In fact, to help drive this home, here's your next fill in the blank. And it's this idea that we should be reminded of this, that Jesus is the ultimate authority who for some is the ultimate threat to having ultimate authority. And that becomes the battle in the hearts of people. Maybe your heart and others. Who gets to sit on the throne? Who gets to make the decisions? Who gets to be the boss? And it can't be two. There's only one room for one on that throne of your heart. So who does it get to be? And for some, and maybe as it's growing for, you could say many, the ultimate authority of Jesus is the ultimate threat. And this is what we see in culture today. We are wise to recognize this. We're also wise as we continue on to see one other observation as Jesus finishes up this conversation with this group of leaders. Look with me at verse 10. He continues on. He says, haven't you read the passage in Scripture? Now, he's going to refer to a passage in Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, where it says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him. Because they're mad, of course. And because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, and so they left and went away. By the way, ironically, to carry out and hatch the very plan that Jesus said in the parable they would do to the son, they left to go hatch the plan and carry out in real life. They basically were bringing the parable to real life. They were going to go and kill the son to get the vineyard, to get him out of there, take out the air. And that's what they left to do. One last observation here from the story. Jesus uses this, this parable and then he goes and he uses this Old Testament reference about a rejected cornerstone. I want you to get a picture of what I mean by a cornerstone. When you have a structure and I'm no architect, but you have this structure, the, the cornerstone is, is the best stone. It's, the, it's often the biggest stone. It's the most important stone. And so you would, when you would build, especially in this time of Jesus' time, you would place the cornerstone first. And the cornerstone had two jobs. The first thing is the cornerstone was really the, the place where you laid the strong foundation, that everything really sat both upon the cornerstone, but second, also with the foundation, everything was oriented to the cornerstone. So if you misplace the cornerstone, the whole building's off. 
So you would take great care to pick the best stone, the strongest stone, put it in the right spot. And if you got that right, then everything orients off the cornerstone and the rest of your building is sound and and oriented properly. And Jesus here uses this this Old Testament uh, passage here to point and say that I am that rejected cornerstone. That cornerstone that you look at me, Jesus would say, and you don't see much. The one that you've tossed away, yet you keep tripping over it. God has said, that's the cornerstone. That's the one. That's the one that we're going to lay that's going to be the strong foundation and orient to everything else. It's a good reminder. Is Jesus your cornerstone? When Jesus is your cornerstone, then then your life, it's not trouble-free. Please don't miss here. But when the ebbs and flow of life come, that foundation is strong. You can stand. And, and when those, those moments come and those hardships smack you upside the head, you, you, you know that both your foundation is strong, but everything else is oriented off of that. And so you can process clearly, God, your perspective on this. Because in the storm, everything's chaos. And yet as I keep my eyes fixed on you, even though the chaos is swirling around, I'm oriented. I know you are a strong cornerstone. You're a strong foundation, Jesus. That's that idea, this picture that Jesus gives for us, that he would be, he longs to be, He's, in, he's waiting to be invited by you and I to be that strong cornerstone in our lives. But we also know that it is very easy to build other things as the cornerstone. There's all kinds of ways that we can do that. And I want to give you a test to know if you have placed a different cornerstone as in that position. If you have put your hope in something else that's not the, the right cornerstone. And it's this. When the cornerstone that you're looking to and you're building your life upon, when that disappoints, does the whole structure of your life fall? That's how you know you have the wrong cornerstone. Because we can do things like put, um, put career as that cornerstone. We can, put, uh, we can put a relationship as that cornerstone. We can put accomplishment or beauty. We can put all kinds of things in that place that becomes that cornerstone of our lives. And when it disappoints, what happens to the structure of your life, if you will? Only Jesus is that strong foundation, that strong cornerstone. How about this one? Because this is what also is happening in culture today. The message of culture today often is, you be your own cornerstone. Like, like you're the cornerstone. You're, you're the one. You, 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 can, you can say what you want, do what you want, sleep with who you want. As long as, here's the only caveat, don't hurt anybody else. As long as that's in place, then you're the captain of your own ship. You kind of do everything you want. You're the cornerstone of your life. This is the message that continues to go out in our culture today. It's this idea of, you know, you, you live your own truth and, and you become your own foundation, And when you do that, then the promise is you experience freedom. Freedom, because there's nobody to tell you what to do. There's nobody to tell you that that's wrong. There's no moral rules. You create your own moral compass. There's nobody that sort of has this authority over your life, and that becomes so tempting. But here's what people find out. It doesn't lead to freedom. It enslaves. People find out that it maybe tastes sweet in the mouth, but it sours in the stomach. And all of a sudden, what they find out, and here's why, because sin always enslaves. 
Sin always uh, ties up, if you will, but Jesus came to set us free. What can happen is we can take a good thing, we can turn it into the main thing, and it becomes a bad thing. What's your cornerstone? What's that thing in your life? Who's that person? Where have you placed Jesus? Is Jesus just somewhere in the structure of your life? Or is he the cornerstone? And Jesus calls this out in a beautiful way. And and the parable does something else as well. Because at the same time, he's indicting these religious leaders. You know what else he's doing? He's sharing the gospel. This parable is the gospel. It's this visual picture of the gospel. This, This visual picture of the owner. I mean, think about the owner for a second. God the care and the love that he put into this vineyard. He did everything to make it work right. He provided everything from the choicest vines to the, the fence around to protect, the watchtower to watch for enemies. He, he did everything that would be needed so that these vines could grow and be healthy and bear fruit. He sent, he sent those that he loved, these helpers at first, to go and to, to check on the vineyard and to collect of its profits. You could almost read this parable and you see like, is the owner like stupid or callous? Like, why does he keep sending people over and over and it's the same outcome over and over again? But that's not the point because what you really see here is you see this extravagant pursuing love that God has for each person. He never quits. He doesn't give up and he doesn't in your life either. In fact, he doesn't to such a degree that what did the owner ultimately do? He sent his son whom he loved. And the son came and the son was the one rejected and humiliated. The son was the one that was killed and tossed out of the vineyard. And he did that to pay the sin penalty for every single one of us. Don't miss this. You and I are in this parable. We're the renters. I understand this was an indictment on a specific group of leaders. And that's true but it's our story too. Because the good news of the gospel has the bad news of our sin. It has to to include that part of our rebellion, of our turning our back on God, of all the ways in certain moments of our lives when we thought, you know what? I want to be the heir of of the vineyard. I want it to be mine. I want to be my own accountability. I want to be my own authority. I don't want anybody or any owner to tell me otherwise. And so you have this incredible picture in this parable of grace. That's what we see here. It's grace. This parable should should move our hearts. And it brings us to the question then, how do we respond to grace? And I want to close with this. Close with one last interaction here in response to this question of how do then we respond to a parable like the vineyard? Look with me at verse 13 as we close. It says, later they sent some Pharisees and Herodians to catch him at his words. If you have your Bible, underline or circle that word catch. Now, what's interesting, by the way, the Pharisees and the Herodians hated each other. 
like couldn't stand each other. And so the fact that they're like partnered in crime, two enemies have a common enemy, they become good buddies, I suppose, and they do this unholy alliance here to come to, 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 to get Jesus. Actually, what they're coming to do is to catch him. Now that word catch is only used, this word is only used one time in the entire New Testament, which makes it rather unique. But this word is unique. What, what it means is, it means to uh, capture someone, but to do so with violence. They're not playing patty cake with Jesus. They are coming to destroy him. This is what they're coming to do. And so it continues on, verse 14. It says, they came to him and they said, teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. By the way, they don't really believe this. They're they're lying. They're completely lying because they're what they're about to do here. And then here's the question of the trap. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now, here's the trap. If Jesus says, you should pay the tax, yes, everybody pay the tax. He's in a public setting. They knew, and what would have happened is that the crowd would have uprose against Jesus. There would have been, you know, groans in the crowd and rebellion, and his crowds would have probably dispersed, and the people would have walked away. He would have lost influence, according to them at least. If Jesus says, you know what, no. Don't pay taxes. The crowd is cheering Jesus, but the Herodians are there who are the political party for King Herod. They were right there and their soldiers probably in the background ready to arrest Jesus. That's insurrection. You don't pay taxes. We're taking you out. Either way, Jesus is stuck. The question was very intentional. Verse 15, as we wrap up, but Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked, bring me a denarius and let me look at it, which I find interesting. He had no money on him. So he asked for this coin. They brought him this coin. They, uh, again, it says they brought the coin. He asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And I want to pause real quick. This is what he would have held in his hand. I mean, not literally this, but it would have been like this. This is a denarius. Denarius was a silver coin. It was, it was equal to a day's wage for a laborer. And uh, it had a front, which is on your left, and a back, which is on your right. The front had an image of the Caesar or the emperor of the time is Tiberius. And it had this inscription on it. It says, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. In other words, this is a declaration. Caesar's in charge. Caesar is the emperor and he is the highest power, not just power. He's divine. He's God, according to Rome. They're, they're propping him up this way. So that's on the left side. The right side has a woman. She's holding a stake, a, a leaf, and she's sitting down there. And then it has another inscription and it says Pontiff Maximus, which means high priest. So what's it saying? It's saying Tiberius, he runs church and state, if you will. He's in charge of everything. He runs the government. Your lives belong to him. And he also runs religion. Your lives belong to him. And by the way, he's divine. You need to worship him. This coin bears his image. It's his coin. It belongs to him. It was a reminder that your lives are his and you better worship him. That's what this coin inscription would have held. Then Jesus, as we wrap up the passage, then Jesus said to them the famous words, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God. And they were amazed at him. In other words, to the crowd, to these leaders, this coin has Caesar's inscription. He can have it. But give to God what belongs to him. And what does that include? You. You. This brings us really to a culmination of all of it. I'd like to invite the worship team to come up, if you would, please. 
the way to respond, the way God wants us to respond to his extraordinary pursuing love in your life, what he's longing for uh, with, with that. The love that sent his son, a, a love that says, I wanna be your cornerstone today is to surrender. Surrender. That, that's the answer. What he longs for more than anything is that we would come before him and we would say, I, I surrender my all to you. And when we surrender, that seems like defeat. It's freedom. It's freedom that he offers in Christ. If anybody here this morning you recognize in the parable that you're the renter and so am I. But you haven't surrendered to the son. You haven't, you haven't made that decision to trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I want to give you that opportunity today, which I'm going to do in just a moment. But if there's any of you here or watching online, you also, there's the idea too of the cornerstone. And I just know from my own life, and it's true for you too, that there are so many ways that other things creep into that position. It's just easy. It's easy. I would challenge you to give some thought and reflection. What, what is that cornerstone for me? Is it finances? Is it career? Is it success? What are those things that have taken over and I'm building my life on that? I promise you it will disappoint at some point. Only Jesus is the sure foundation that you can orient your life on and know he's got you. And so this morning, my challenge to all of us is to surrender. It's not giving up, it's giving over. And to trust him with all of your heart and with all of your life. Would you pray with me? Let's pray together and then we're gonna respond in worship as we close this morning. Father, we thank you. We thank you that in the midst of this scene, Nothing short of a verbal attack and confirmation that Jesus was bold and sure and gracious, but truthful. And this parable of the vineyard, this reminder of your gospel message, this good news that highlights, yes, who we are, but who you are, Lord, and how far you have come to reach us. An extravagant love that we don't understand, but Lord, we this morning tell you thank you. And as you're praying, I want to give anybody here this morning or again online, if if you have not made that decision to trust in Jesus as your Savior, why not today? Today's the best day because it's today to make that decision. And if that's you, then I just want you to just, just pray something like this. Father, I recognize my sin. But I also recognize you sent your son who went to the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. But then three days later, rose again. Lord, I accept you and invite you into my heart and life as my savior and as my cornerstone. If you prayed that prayer this morning, I'm gonna be standing outside in the lobby. Would you come find me? I'd just love to hear about this and celebrate with you. But for others of you this morning, it's given you a moment to say and to evaluate, what's your cornerstone?
What are you building your life on? I'm going to give you a moment to talk to God about that. Father, this morning we come to you collectively as your church in a posture of surrender. And we thank you that we can trust you and your loving and faithful leadership in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We please stand and join us as we sing to Jesus Christ, our living hope.
this morning in worship. Um, I do want to encourage you um, that if you did make a decision for Christ today, uh, do please find Pastor Ryan um, and share that with him. Also, if you are in need of prayer this morning, folks will be available to pray with you. Otherwise, God bless. Have a wonderful week.